Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Clash of the Titles, the podcast that sees two movies with something in common go head to head to see which one does it better. And welcome to week two of our Halloween countdown, King versus King in the red corner. Talk about toxic fandom. When you ruin that sacred bond of trust between creator and fan, well, there's no telling what might happen. Your audience might disappear. You might be out of a job or you might be taken prisoner, hobbled and worst of all, called a dirty birdie from 1990. We're talking misery. You almost died. You have a compound fracture of the tibia in both legs, and the fibula in the right leg is fractured, too. And as soon as the roads open, I'll take you to a hospital. In the meantime, you've got a lot of recovering to do. There is nothing to worry about. You're going to be just fine. I'm your number one fan. My name is Annie Wilkes. I guess it was kind of a miracle you finding me. In a way, I was following you. You were following me. Oh, Paul, I've read everything of yours. You dirty bird. How could you? Misery Chastain cannot be dead. Misery spirit is still alive. I don't want her spirit! I want her! And you murdered her! While in the blue corner, sexy roleplay is fine. But only if both partners are into it. Otherwise, it can be an awkward affair that leads to arguments and worse, especially if you take to calling yourself daddy. That's a big swing on any day. Also, if you're planning on dying in the process, do lock up the dog. From 2017, it's Gerald's game. This is going to be good for us, Jess. Really good. Gerald? What? What's happening? Gerald! Five hours you've wasted screaming for neighbors that are half a mile away if they're even here yet. How long do you think someone lives without water? That will not work. You can pull till your wrists break. You're not getting out of those cups. Not real. You're not real. So what connects these two films and which one does it better? Let's find out. It's Clash of the Titles. 
the Kraken. Hello, Clash Butters. What do you think I say when I go to the feed store in town? Oh, now, Wally, give me a bag of that effing pig feed. I'm Alex Zane. I'm Vicky Crompton. I'm Chris Tilly. How are you both? Good. Really well. Yeah? Yeah, I'm really enjoying King versus King. Okay. Yeah, it's really good. I like a themed anything, don't I? But themed podcast, I suppose it's good. <laughs> well, you're involved in that. Yeah, yeah, I am yeah. involved in it. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's something that I um, enjoy being involved in. I am enjoying it. Although, as I was just saying before we started, I'm not sleeping very well. Mm. I, I worked out that in the last two weeks, I've watched over 20 hours of horror. Uh-huh. Now, granted, that's not just for the show. That includes Midnight Mass and Squid Game. Mm. But it's starting to take a toll on me. Like mm. I, I'm waking up in the middle of the night with a cold sweat on. Night terrors. Screaming. Screaming. <laughs> yeah, I, I, needed to wa- I wanted to watch something yesterday and I knew it couldn't be horror. So yeah. it ended up being Melissa McCarthy. Of course. A palate cleanser. Perfect. <laughs> but, I watch all these, but then I always watch one episode of Parks and Rec after yep. so I can go to bed feeling good. You see, that's what I needed to know. Where was that advice? Why yeah, are you sorry. keeping that to yourself? Also, ask him which Melissa McCarthy movie you watched. Go on. Uh, it's called Super Intelligence. Right. It's new. Oh, is it good? No, it's a horror movie. Oh, is it? Just not in a classic sense. <laughs> I saw the thing for it um, on Netflix. Yeah. All right, then. So these were Chris's choices this week. Chris tells why. Because um, we've got to do King versus King <laughs> and there's only so many we could find. There's some that we wanted to do, but they aren't really readily available. Mm. Um, but I do very much enjoy both of these films. And then when you see that the connection so prominent in the pair of them, it seemed like a good double. Yeah. yeah. That's right. It is week two of our world famous Halloween countdown month here on Clash Pod. And this year to get us ready for the greatest night of the year, we are celebrating the master of horror as every week we're going to be pitting a Stephen King adaptation against the Stephen King adaptation. It's a month of King versus King. So the clue you gave on last week's show, Chris. Uh, Duvet days. And you followed that up on Twitter with? No additional clue this month because I think the fact that they're both Stephen King adaptations is going to massively narrow it down for people. Yeah, we've reduced the number of films it could be and therefore we had a lot of right answers this week. We are on Twitter at ClashPod and Instagram at ClashPod and we unlocked the handcuffs on today's correct guesses. Like I said, there are a lot. I might not do this every week, but I'm going to do it this week just because I feel I needed to announce if I'm not going to credit people for getting the right answer. But Richard Cartwright, Danny Baker, Gary, Laura Jane Jackson, Reese Page, Tim Wilkins, Russ, Marion Baudet, Ian Hughes, Paul Logue, Ben Just Ben, Kirsten Ellen Young were all locked in a room while Robert Farley delivered our first correct answer. Congratulations, Robert. Your prize is a bag I found in Chris's basement. It rattles when you shake it and it smells of bone. It's all yours. <laughs> The connection section, what you got? Beds. Mm. Beds. Beds. Is that what you're going with? I've got beds. I've got unwanted animals in your room. So a dog and a pig, the other way around. Why is the pig unwanted? I don't think he looks that happy. <laughs> this pig is like nuzzling him. Poor yeah. Sheldon does not. I'd, I'd be overwhelmed with joy if a pig wandered into my it's room. It's a cute pig, yeah, as these things go. I say that. I'd need to know that the pig was around and in the house before it wandered into the room. If I woke up from one of my nightmares and there was a pig <laughs> next to me, yeah. I'd not be too happy. Uh, okay, I've got, this is a weird one, thigh touching in cars. Oh, yeah. Mm. Yeah, Gerald has a uh, sneaky feel he against, against Jesse's wishes and the uh, the old sheriff's wife uh, has a, <laughs> yeah, cops a right. quick thigh feel she in the does. car. That's brilliant. Thanks. I was proud of that one. Uh, they both start with a soul classic. Mm. But a Sam Cooke in Gerald's Game, which I will get onto. I have things to say about them doing that to that song. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this is a very personal connection, 
but they both feature scenes that I've never seen because I've closed my eyes every time I've watched them. Okay. I mean, I guess hand and hobbling. Yes. Right. Okay. You Have you watched them this time? Did you watch them? No, 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 no. Really? You've no. never seen them? Nope, 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 nope. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, okay. Serial Killers. Annie Wilkes is, I mm. think, a serial killer. I think she so, is, yes. yes. Yeah. Yep, yep. Okay. And uh, obviously, Raymond Chaubert killed, uh, and I quote, a dozen or more people. Mm-hmm. That's that, good. that seems that's, good. That's that seems good. Yeah. That's it. And bed. Yep. As, as Vic said, bed is really yeah, bed. the thing. Uh, hallucinations. That'll be my final one. Obviously, there's loads of hallucinations. Gerald's Gaming at the very end. James oh, yeah. Kahn sees Annie Wilkes in, in the, the restaurant. restaurant. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and finally, uh, I love a I love a Rotten Tomatoes matchup. Uh, Misery, 90% on Rotten Tomatoes. Gerald's Game, 91%. No. Yeah, it's a close wow. fight this week as far as Rotten Tomatoes is concerned. <laughs> All right, let's get into this then. King versus King. So on Thursday, I'm going to show you all inside my special bag of brooches, bones and body parts, which means today Vicky is reminding all writers out there what she'll do to you if your script isn't structurally sound. She does insist on good structure. V, take us on a journey. Paul Sheldon is a writer, and maybe an idiot, making some poor choices lately, including killing off his best-selling character, Misery Chastain, to write some awards-baked guff about sweary street kids, and driving a knackered car through a lethal blizzard. All things putting him in the path of Annie Wilkes, who with her sweet homespun cardigans and porcelain penguins and sensible fringe, butter wouldn't melt. Except it would melt, because she's a deranged baby killer, now standing the heck out of her number one Mr. Man, shattering his ankles with a sledgehammer. Talk about starstruck! That's for you, Chris. Mm -hmm. That's good, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Um, So he'll bring misery back to life, (laughs) then join Annie in a death act. And with no one really doing much by the way of investigating, where are the proper police rather than oversex pensioners? It seems Paul has no choice until he remembers he's still got arms and brains Annie with a typewriter until she dies. His new book, not the street kids one, Annie Made in Burn, is a hit with critics and will bring Paul the legitimacy and veneration he craves because for all their cock-a-doody temper, Annie was simply showing, not telling Paul that writing is rewriting and while she may have gone to extremes to prove it you've got to admire her for that I told you see see yeah. my stupid introduction actually horribly yeah. real yeah. we should have checked with each other but yeah she's actually done him a fucking favour I did write I'd probably get more done within Annie Wilkes in my life I did I was like yeah. wow I do need someone to lock me in a room with my laptop and a pig and he does say that at the end he says the experience helped him mm-hmm. yep so thank you I think is what he's reaching for yeah so it's the it's the so it's the, is it the same book, but a rewritten version of it? I don't think it... Well, it's difficult because in the book of Misery, the book gets a name. It's called like Street Cars, Fast Cars. Fast Cars, yeah. But that's not the book he publishes. In the, no. in the, in the novel, yeah. it's, the, it's the book that Misery Annie Wilkes yeah, yeah, forced Misery him turns. to write. Yeah, yeah. but um, yes. I think so this then, is the same book, the art book... Because I think it has the same title. But it's called, it's untitled in the film. Right, okay. So you see really clearly it's untitled. Because yeah. then he jokes and then he's like, maybe you could give it a title. She's like, oh, maybe. Um, and then it's got a very artsy title at the end. Like, the, the I actually should, I didn't look at what it was, but I didn't know if it was the same. But, but anyway. The Higher think, Education of J. Philip Stone. Yeah. But it's not obviously the story of him because you sort of think the natural thing would be he writes a story about him being yeah. held captive. By Annie Wilkes, and that is then the bestseller. So she's helped him yeah. in that way, but that's not it because obviously his, age, his agent is there going, "Why don't you do that? What are you doing to me? This yeah. is definitely the quickest we've ever jumped to the end." 
<laughs> is that my fault? No, no I, guess, I, think, I think it's all about it. Uh, this is a world record for us. <laughs> I'm surprised you're so cool about it. <laughs> all right, well, let's rewind. Um, I have seen this twice before today um, and I have read it and it did scare the shit out of me um, both times. It scared me less this time just because it's more of a, like a character study now. Like I'm more interested in Annie's like little tempers and how unpredictable her moods are. But the first couple of times I saw it, the empty phone is the bit that got me. And obviously it was really parodied with French and Saunders, but the empty phone, I think about that all the time. Mm. I don't know why. Uh, what about you? That is literally exactly my experience. So I watched it once. I must have been, about, I don't know, about 12. So shortly after it came out on video, I watched it and it scared the life out of me. I genuinely found it quite mm. horrifying and it worked in that respect. Watched it again in my 20s maybe and didn't find it as scary but totally totally mesmerized by Kathy Bates performance and just that was what got me this time and just how freaking good she is in this movie yeah well obviously I always bang on about the fact I didn't watch horror films but really when I say that I mean stuff like Nightmare on Elm Street and Texas Chainsaw Massacre if I could convince myself it was a thriller as much as a horror, then I would watch it. So that's why I saw Manhunter when I was very young, mm. Science of the Lambs, and this one. I even feel like this was a family favourite. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I watched this with my parents. Yeah, I remember um, there being a lot of, there was a lot of hoopla around yeah. this film. Yeah. I guess because it went on to win the Oscar, it became, it was, it was a serious, you're watching a serious film. Yes. Um, but it's just an awesome, fun horror as well. So yeah, I, I've, I've saw it on video a couple of times back then. Haven't watched it since. It's not one that I've wanted to go back to no. until this week where I was like, oh, I'm really excited to it's actually a, see this again. You think about it all the time. I think about that porcelain penguin quite a lot. Yes. Um, but it's not something you think, oh, I'll sit down and I'll, I'll the only the, the reasons I've thought about it in the last few years are because of experiencing a little bit of toxic fandom when I was working at IGN and they, the entitlement that fans feel and the way they will attack you if they disagree with you on your opinion or they don't like something that you've created. And so it's, it, it's made me think a few times of, wow, he was really ahead of the curve yeah. with that because this is pre-internet. Uh, yeah. when those voices have sort of all been elevated. There was a great, there's a great episode that you got me onto of Inside Number Nine mm. about the same thing Simon mm. Says, is it called? Is that yes. the one? That's fantastic. Yeah, it's really good. Really good. Well, actually, oh, go on, sorry. No, I was just going to say, it's weird. I think I remember watching it as a kid and thinking this was quite an in-depth, quite a serious, like a lot of the themes were quite serious in this movie. And to watch it now, it feels a lot more lightweight and fun and silly. Yeah, I'll buy that. Well, I mean, your point about it sort of predating like internet fandom and, and stanning and things like that, or not predating it, but just talking about it in a way that we talk about it more now, is interesting because just to talk about the background. So the book, Stephen King says it was written about cocaine addiction rather than about a fan. So using um, Annie Wilkes as an allegory for his addiction to cocaine, which is maybe why the police presence is quite sketchy in it, because no one's really looking for Paul and... This is me talking. I haven't read this. Like his daughter doesn't seem to pop up. And maybe because they're not supposed to. And uh, Buster never really refers to the amount of time that he's been missing because it's really not real, that he's not really missing in that way. Like it's really about drugs. So he's like, you know, Paul Shannon's been missing for a while and he's presumed dead. But no one ever says it's been six weeks, it's been six months. Like, where is this man? And the way that they look for him, you know, he says to someone, oh, the FBI have been alerted and all the rest of it. But it's just this old man <laughs> flying around looking for him. Like, where is 
This, where are the rest of the state troopers? Like things well, like that. He's declared dead pretty early on, yeah. which is why they, I think the the search ends, and it's just this bloke with a theory who, who's yeah. still going. But in the in the real world, he's you know he's got a daughter. You think she might turn up and say like, "Where show me the body?" kind of thing. Mm. But anyway, okay, so let's just go back. But you're right. I mean, there's a, in, uh, only because I, I was reading it um, again recently. The book we always talk about Stephen King on writing. He does exactly. He says exactly what you just said. He says uh, what I finally decided uh, was Annie Wilkes the the psycho nurse in misery was coke and he was booze and so I decided I was tired of being Annie's pet writer he was afraid that he wouldn't be able to work anymore if he quit drinking and drugging but he decided uh, that he would trade writing for staying married and watching his kids grow up nice Mm. (laughs) Um, so anyway so like we said it's a book 1987 Um, but Stephen King isn't interested in selling the film adaptation rights because he's in a bit of a grump about that sort of thing at that point in the 80s unless you happen to be Rob Reiner who just done Stand By Me um, and Stephen King told Rob Reiner that it was the best film that had been done from one of his books and then Rob Reiner said before I could get too excited he quickly added but that isn't saying very much <laughs> which is nice um, so Stephen King did agree to have Misery adapted as long as Rob Reiner was going to produce it or direct it through Castle Rock so then William Goldman is hired to adapt it so William Goldman says that it was a particular scene in the book which you know what this is and we'll come back to it that convinced him to get on board to adapt it um, and that is what became the axe scene. So it's an axe scene in the book, but it's slightly different. But just put a pin in that because we'll come back to it. Um, William Goldman said, I could not fucking believe it. I mean, I knew she wasn't going to tickle him with a peacock feather. God love that man. <laughs> but I never dreamt such behaviour was possible. And I knew I had to write the movie. So what he's talking about is what's in the book and what he wrote for a screenplay is that Annie cuts off one of Paul's feet with an axe and then cauterizes it with a propane torch or a blowtorch. Mm. Um and so just have that hang in because we need to talk about which is worse. Uh, but there we are. Because then when William Goldman is writing that a scene that he loves so much and he wants to be involved in, and put on the screen, he writes it with Kathy Bates in mind. She was like super big in theatre but not very well known in film. And then after Bette Midler turned it down and also people like Jessica Lange, Barbara Streisand, Roseanne Barr, Rosie O'Donnell were mentioned. Kathy Bates meets Rob Reiner and she smashed it. Yeah. Another pun. Um, I just want to I just want to rewind. Are you asking us what is worse? Just when it comes to that point, yeah, in the film, will, you're yeah. gonna want to know whether having your foot chopped off with yeah. an axe, yeah. or smashed with a sledgehammer, and you don't know what the answer is. Already. I know what the answer is for me. Yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah. <laughs> Great. I'm excited to find out okay. what happens at that moment. <laughs> so, um, so George Roy Hill of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. He was also attached to direct, but we come back to this axe scene and the, specifically the chopping got <laughs> chopping off of a foot with an axe. So he couldn't do it. I mean, he changed his mind apparently because he didn't want to do that scene which Goldman really wanted to be in. So Rob Ryan has got a bit of a problem and he's got a problem finding a lead actor um, and it was going to be Warren Beatty and a lot of, has been said about that and he sort of helped develop the script and like beef up Paul's character. So there's a few articles that say the axe scene was too much. He didn't want to do it. And there's a few articles that say it was scheduling conflict with Dick Tracy. But Rob Reiner said, when it came to the point we were ready to do it, BT was too nervous and he left. So mm. he didn't want to do it. Um, and I think the thinking is, and certainly quotes I've, I've read that supposedly Betty said, it's because he didn't want to look like a wimp. Mm. He got right. cold feet. <laughs> um, oh my God, you can't help yourself. That's amazing. <laughs> um, yeah, because he was worried like looking like a loser at, at the end of the film, which Ugh. is just a ridiculous thing to say, I isn't know. it? It's Big man, honestly. That, that's one of the reasons that James Kahn actually said he wanted to take it because the character of Paul Sheldon is so reactive for most of it as yeah. opposed to proactive. Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, you know, he's he's got a spare. <laughs> this makes me laugh my head off. James can't got it. He was, you know, he was a bit of a risky hire because of his drinking or his past drinking. Um, but he's got this sort of trapped energy that's really good in the part because it's hard for him to just react because he's quite like you know he's a bundle of nerves. Um, but he spent fifteen weeks in bed. <laughs> He thought Rob Reiner was joking and Rob Reiner would wind him up at the start of each take. And he's, Rob Reiner said, uh, Jimmy thought I'd give him some wisdom, but every time I'd just say, Jimmy, in this scene, you're in bed. <laughs> and then walk off. <laughs> and it's like every day for like 15 weeks, which is amazing. Mm. Uh, but yeah, like you say, he wasn't first choice, uh, but obviously, you know, it's, it's perfect now, but also mentioned with Jack Nicholson, Robert, Daniel, like everyone, Harrison Ford, Mel Gibson, Robert Redford, Dustin Hoffman, Al Pacino, Denzel Washington, Bruce Willis. Um, the, the people who came quite close, though, are people that I would, which I believe are Richard Dreyfus and William mm. Hurt. Yeah. They're, I believe them as authors. I don't think I ever quite buy no. that James Kahn is, is, a, is a writer. It's a terrible thing, but it, it works when he's talking about the street kids because of his accent. His mm-hmm. accent is so like, you know, to us, to English is like sort of street talking New York. Mm. That when he's like, oh, I grew up in the gutter. And so you're like, oh yeah, I get that. But to be able to do these like bodice ripper romantic yeah. novels doesn't seem he, right. He is just, he is masculinity and aggression, it feels to me. And so I don't really buy him as a sensitive writer. Yeah, it is unusual <laughs> that he could write misery. And I love the film and I love his performance in it. But when I heard those other names, I was like, ah, oh, maybe this is something just in my subconscious. I'm just not quite buying him. Dreyfus especially. I mean, I don't know whether it's because your mind just goes to that last scene in Stand By Me when he's at the computer tapping out. Oh, yeah. You know, <laughs> you never had friends that you had when you were 12 years old. <laughs> yeah. But I'm like, yes, Richard Dreyfus yeah. for this. That would be quite nice. Which actually, just to like end on um, Rob Reiner, because for a film that is about a man sort of turning his back on his most successful work, it's very apt that he would direct it. So he said <clears> that he was already working on Misery when Harry, um, when Harry Matt Sally came out and he said not a day went by when someone didn't say keep making those kind of films. <laughs> well, so, he was coming off. I think it's my favourite directing run of all time of any director. It's Spinal Tap, The Sure Thing, Stand By Me, Princess Bride, When Harry Met Sally, Misery and then A Few Good Men. I love all of those films. Yeah. I just, but as you said, those if you count Stand By Me as a comedy, which I think I do, they're all comedies. Yes. They're all hit comedies. And so, yeah, he's making this move like he did when he was a teenager. When he was a teenager, he made the move from acting to directing. And now he's trying to make the move from comedy to horror. Yeah. And, and so he can relate to, to, to what this guy's thinking and going through. And didn't he, he said he watched and studied all of Alfred Hitchcock's yep. movies to mm-hmm. prepare for this film. Yeah, there's a great behind the scenes documentary called Misery Loves Company. And he mm-hmm. says, yeah, he watched all of them. Well, apparently, because you know Barry Sonnenfeld was the DOP. So the last point on this, he apparently said to him, do you ever think this could be your Vietnam? Because you could pull out right now. Reiner said, I laughed so hard. And I said, no, we're going to keep going. <laughs> your, Viet- your Vietnam. It's a bit strong. <laughs> <laughs> the only uh, the only other things I found out, and when he first came up with the the short story, he, he thought it was going to be a short story, did Stephen King. Um, when he came up with the idea, I think he had a dream on a plane. Um and it sounds like the perfect end to one of his short stories. As we were talking about Night Shift, love that. Um, and uh, Nightmares and Dreamscapes. And they all had quite a like, oh my God, ending. And in the original one, not only did he write uh, this book, Misery Returns, for Annie Wilkes, but then she killed him and used his skin to bind the only copy of the book. <laughs> that was how his original story was going to end. And it was only when he started writing that and discovered that he quite liked these characters and expanded them that he turned it into uh, the short novel that it actually is. Oh, that's great. And obviously William Goldman, it's not his only Stephen King adaptation. <laughs> do, do it. <laughs> he did also, alongside uh, the genius that is Lawrence Kasdan, together, that powerhouse gave us Dreamcatcher. 
Oh, right. Mm. Which is a film we'll be able to do one day, I think. I hope so. Shit weasels. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> right, any and, more? Yeah, the only the other thing I'll say is when I was watching it, you, we, I think I feel like this month we're seeing a lot of interconnections between the films, certain themes that Stephen King comes back to. I was watching it thinking, this would have gone quite well with The Shining. Yeah, of course. Um, addiction. And what I didn't realise is, is it takes place in a fictional town that's right by where the Overlook Hotel is. Yeah. So they could have been happening Brilliant. in conjunction. Yeah. All right, then, should we talk about the film? Mm, sure. Okay, lovely. So we'll meet Paul. He's a writer because he wears a roll neck. Um, hmm. And he's just finished a new book, although not really because he couldn't be asked to give it a title. <laughs> um, do you not love the cigarette and glass of Don Perignon? Or I do. Don Perignon. Don Perignon. Um, in the book, though, he drinks two... But this, so I was I was making a joke in the introduction that he foolishly <laughs> drives a car through a blizzard, mm. which he shouldn't be doing. And he's had one glass. That's his little sort of ritual. Yeah. But in the book, it doesn't he drink like a couple of bottles and then hits the road because he's still in the grip a bit right. of alcohol. Is mm. That's what I thought I remembered, but I, I, maybe I'm wrong. Do you not have a little ceremony when you finish a script? Uh, <laughs> they're never finished, mm. Alex. <laughs> writing is rewriting. I'm not even being an extra version of myself. Put that sledgehammer down. <laughs> I get it. Just tell me. They're not finished. <laughs> Fine. <laughs> Never do Alex, but do when, you, do when, you. You, when you do, is it going to be just go smash open that bottle of WKD? <laughs> I get chuffed. Just sorry, just to bring it back to me for a second. If I've got a bit of work to do that day and I do the scene and I think it's good, I'll be pleased and I may celebrate mm. with a high end cocktail. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Maybe. Mm. But you, you don't tap. You, it's not like, I don't know with a novel. That's why it's funny watching a writer in this because he's like, the end, <laughs> done. And I'm like, uh uh. That first draft is done, Paul, sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, to answer your question, Chris, I have, I have a routine, but I do it the other way round. So I'll drink a bottle of champagne and then start writing. Churn out some shit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Mine's in between. <laughs> when I'm writing the... Then that first draft's done, that horrible draft that it's hard to look at for mm. the first time, read it back. I, t I take it to the pub and write the second draft over the course of having three pints at the pub. You're and that really it. has... No, absolutely not. Some of the best stuff I've written has been <laughs> in that situation. Um, but obviously you can't make a habit of that. No. But I found my focus much more laser sharp when I was in the pub than in my home. Well, I mean, you joke, but like Simon Knight, I know you're not a fan of this theory, but Simon Knight, uh, the sitcom writer... Uh, when he was asked that exact question about sort of, you know, how do you begin uh, a script? And he's like, well, you can do this, you can do this. And if nothing else works, I find drinking a bottle of wine and just writing whatever comes out is the best way to do it. <laughs> you've got to have something, I guess. Like, <laughs> you've got to start with something. But it might be a hard road if it's utter shit <laughs> rather than just a bit shit. Um, but anyway, so Paul, yes, he's got his little ritual. He's super chuffed because he's been in a rut and he's been churning out these misery chastain, what a name, novels, um, which are sort of a romantic bodice ripper kind of thing. Uh, but this book he's just finished. This, you know, you're meant to understand that this is the real deal, that this is the real thing uh, through flashbacks as well. But anyway, he knows fuck all about road safety. So he obviously crashes instantly in a big blizzard. It is quite a, w a weird crash. He sort of like, it happens all very slowly. I'm sure I've never crashed in a blizzard. Although, shit, I was once in Nederland, which is this town in the Colorado Rockies um, where they have this festival called the uh, the Dead Guy Days, I think it is. Basically, years ago, a guy set up a makeshift cryogenic freezer and froze his grandpa's body 
in his mountain cabin and it's still there. And then they had to pass this law in the state going, you are now no longer allowed to make a makeshift cryogenic freezer and put a body in it. But they have this festival to celebrate it. Dead guy days, I think it is. Anyway, we were driving down the mountain in a four by four and we were just Brits. And obviously we didn't know exactly how dangerous it is. And it did go into a sideways slide (gasps) along a road. And thankfully it just ground to a halt. But the drop on the far side was tremendous. I mean, we would if we would have died. So that's story three in about the same month where I've nearly died. Oh my God. <laughs> Why is it all coming out now as well? I've known you for years. <laughs> I don't know if I want to sit in the same studio because I feel like something's going to happen. It really pan. I'm, you know, when you're learning to drive, you're taught if you go into a spin, you've got to turn the other way. And I always remember thinking if that ever happened, I would have no idea because I'm not very good with left and right anyway. I just wouldn't. You have to supposed to, you're supposed to steer in, into, into it. Yeah, into this. That, and that's counterintuitive. It wasn't so much that. It was the fact that you just always assume when you're driving, you hit the brakes. Oh, and it stops. And, and something stops. <laughs> yeah. But you hit the brakes there and oh, it just carries on moving. That's a nightmare. Plus, I'm confident that one day you'll get to a point where left and right is obvious to you. I'm 40, Chris. I know, but it just it just can't not happen. <laughs> I bought to report Leo my child some new shoes yesterday. And because they're for children, shoes. They've, got, oh, they've got an L and an R in them. I was like, that is so fucking handy. When did they stop doing that? Anyway. Uh, anyway, so this is when Annie Wilkes, who is superhumanly strong, I noticed this time for the first time, like she picks up an adult man, an unconscious adult man, and just hoiks him up a mountain mm. in the snow. Which is unbelievable. But it's that's important. apparently why when they were trying to turn it into a Broadway play a, a long time ago, Julia Roberts was going to play the role and that's Stephen King that. just put his foot down and said, no, um, she's not a pixie. Yeah, she <laughs> needs to be a, a sturdy woman. Mm. Um, so she, adoringly, but at this point, we'll talk a lot about like the bumps and dips in her moods and tempers. But it's not too spooky at this point, I don't think. I mean, you might disagree, but she's like, I'm your number one fan. And she's also a nurse, which is super handy. So while the road is blocked and the phones are down, she's going to tend to his broken legs at home. And also, it looks like a nice home, or does it? Like, you tell me what you think. It doesn't look like a horror home. And like with The Shining, all the bad stuff is going to happen in the daylight. Mm. But is there anything about the home itself that you were like, I'm, you would think, you know, no. alarms, I'm in danger? No, I think, I think it starts. And I think if you hadn't read the book... Uh, or knew anything about it, you would not immediately go, uh-oh, here's trouble. You'd be like, "This, she, he's been rescued. I wonder who the villain's going to be because yeah. maybe someone's going to come in and kill this Annie Wilkes character and they're going to be the villain or there's a monster in the basement because she seems really fucking nice. If I walked yeah. into your house, Alex, mm. and you had that many pictures of Liberace all around the place, <laughs> alarm bells would start ringing. I take them down before I have guests. <laughs> and she's wearing a cross around her neck as well, which I think is important because... She does she talk about Jesus? I can't remember, but the cross is very obvious, and it's obviously there for you to think I'm all right with this woman. Mm. But then it taps into when we find out what she's been up to in her sort of old life, this angel of death thing mm-hmm. that she has going on. Do you think that though? I mean, I, I, if you're watching a movie based on a Stephen King adaptation <laughs> no. and you see a character with a cross around the neck, do you ever think, oh, she's all right? She'll be all right. Yeah. They he, always turn out bloody, to be nice. Don't they? <laughs> he bloody loves religion. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Mrs. Carmody in the Mist. She's the real hero in that story. Yeah. As I've said, as I've said. Mm. <laughs> Let's not go over that again. But what's interesting at this point is so Paul is bedbound, really bedbound. And 
he, but he still, I, my reading is he still thinks he has some power. Now, not necessarily physical power, but power to influence Annie yes. in a way. Mm. Because he thinks uh, he's above her, not in, and maybe not in a supercilious way, but she's quite deferential to him. So she finds the manuscript in his book bag that's the untitled. And when she's like, oh, can I read it or whatever? He's like, oh, I have some rules about that. And then he's quite flirting. He's like, but I can break the rule for you. And she can't believe it. And she's really, and she twirls around and she's really girlish. So I think he thinks... He's probably a little bit worried because it's an unusual situation for him to be in. And as a New Yorker, he's probably uncomfortable to be in a very rural setting. But he hasn't woken up in this horror film staple of like he's chained to a bed and he's distraught. He probably thinks he's going to be all right at this mm. point. Yep, um, I agree. Although, as you say, he is starting to use his powers of manipulation. So he, he, he knows something's amiss. Yeah, exactly. Um, but mis- uh, misery, uh, Annie does not like the new book and she doesn't like the swearing in particular. Mm. So this is for me, so the camera, we use a really close sort of slightly skewed angle on her face when she loses her temper and she fucking loses it about the swearing. Sorry, she fucking loses it. Sorry, Annie, about the swearing. Um, But that's when you realise now you're in for it because all is not quite right. Yeah, I wrote, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh, down. But it's great. I mean, just... You know, we talked about Jack Nicholson and the the face acting he does, like mm. in The Shining last week. I mean, this the face acting is she's like just like just the way it moves. It's yeah. it, you you're like there's the Oscar right there in yeah. that one moment you could give her the Oscar. And, it's yeah. fantastic. And that's Sonnenfeld yeah. though as well. You know, you've talked about all these these angles he was excited to to use in this film, and it's tight angles, it's close ups of her face. Mm. She, she, there's nowhere to hide and she gives you everything yeah because her, but also her eyes are blank her mouth is angry her, her, her body is physical but she's she's got this sort of stillness it's all very complicated profanity um, has no nobility it's a nice line it's a good line <laughs> it's untrue but <laughs> whatever oh, um, mm. I know I know you don't like swearing I know and I should try hard I, 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 I did swear a lot when I was a teenager mm. okay but I stopped yeah, okay. Because profanity make... has no nobility. <laughs> Did you make a conscious decision to stop yeah, swearing? Yeah, I thought it made me sound more stupid than I am. Okay. It's weird. I was talking I, I, I was talking to Raul Coley from Midnight Mass. Uh, I did an interview with him. Can I mention the other podcast very quickly? Why are you, asking, why are you checking with him and not with me? Oh, I'm fine. So on the other podcast I do. Yes, you, you can. Thank you, Chris. <laughs> uh, <laughs> just the facts. Uh, anyway, uh, I just did an interview with uh, Raul Coley. And he, his character, if you see Midnight Mass, he's, um, he's the only Muslim in this uh, community of devout Christians. And part of his performance he was like I'd never ever want to lose my call because I have to remain calm because that's the only way that I don't feed into whatever paranoia they might have about who I am and so for the whole thing until the very end he's very 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 calm but there's one scene where he delivers a monologue and he's never sworn and he still keeps his calm but he drops a couple of f-bombs at really specific times in that speech and at that point you're like wow Mm. instead of getting angry that swear has done exactly the same thing without him needing to be angry. Yeah, it's like when you, you know, because you, well, I swear a lot, but my parents didn't at all. Uh, but if they did, it was bad. Like they'd have to be extremely angry or mm. or shocked. Like if we'd like, I remember once like we, we nearly crashed in the car and my dad swore then. And that was all in the mix of like the, the shock of that and the trauma of like nearly crashing. And my dad swore and it's like, that's really bad. Um, so it, it is meant to have power and potency. I mean, I swear so much it just loses its meaning, obviously. <laughs> yeah. um, all right, so you've killed five minutes talking about your other show. So <laughs> we'll have a break, shall we? <laughs> that was the ad. <laughs> okay, are we going to get paid for that? That's awesome. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. 
Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. So Annie reads The Latest Misery. Uh, she goes super nuts because... And this is when she goes nuts again. So we'll, I will mention this quite a few times, but William Goldman's job of... So you normally do positive beat, negative beat, positive beat, negative beat. You look at your characters when they last end in on a negative, let's have them end on a positive. He does mess around, because he's allowed to, because he's William Goldman, but he messes around with that a little bit, which is good because it um, wrong-foots you quite mm. a lot. You never, you don't actually... It's, it's quite easy to say, oh, she's really unpredictable, but she is unpredictable. Like You're mm. not sure how she's going to react to the same sort of stimulus each time. I'm like, it's so exciting never knowing yeah. which Annie is going to come yeah. through the door. So Mis- Misery's dead in this in the book, the, the latest book of Paul's, and she goes super nuts and she calls him a dirty birdie, mm. which is so unsettling. Like, isn't it better? She called him a motherfucker. Mm. But dirty birdie mm. is a parent shouting at her, or it's her trying to keep her cool. And like you said about Ralco, like trying to keep you so that you know, your religion is like, I'm not gonna break and I need to sort of remain like civilized. And so she's when she spits out that it's even more unsettling. It's even worse. Somehow. And also because you don't really know what it means because it's not a swear word that you understand. Yeah. It's like I don't. You, it, it you've never been. You. A, you've never been a dirty I've birdie. Never, I don't think I've ever been a dirty birdie. <laughs> I think you have. <clears> to I probably, me, I probably, dirty I probably have. I just haven't realised. Back in the nineties, because it's like because <laughs> it's quite childlike. I think it sounds like someone scolding a child for doing something that they perceive to be almost sexual. And it's clamping down on that impulse. Do you mm. not think? Yeah, that sounds. I think. That, and that's yeah. why it's really upsetting. Mm. It's horrible, isn't it? Then I have been a dirty birdie. <laughs> oh, see, that's gross. <laughs> Fucking hell. You looked at me really weird. <laughs> yeah, you did. I'm glad he looked at you then. I don't want any of that. Yeah, make it your mind. Do you want it directed at you or not? <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a pick and mix, isn't it? So, anyway, then she switches back. So she wants to help him. 
So she makes him burn his untitled book and she really makes him do it. It would be easy for her to do it and to say, I'm teaching you or whatever. But she is a big fan of Show Don't Tell. God love this woman. And she honestly thinks she's helping him. It's the ruse as well that he tries and fails. Yeah, it's the it's bit so where good. It's like, I make a hundred copies. So my agent's already got it. Yeah. All of that. And she's like, Actually, I know that's bullshit. So. <laughs> yeah. And it, it plays, you know, it's important for his character that he's trying to, he has the um, the strength to lie to her, to say, and, and quite coolly, like, you know, I've already, this is, there's a bidding more happening right now, is what he tells her. And she's like, that's bollocks, which is great. But she's still sweet in that scene. So when the book sets on fire, she's like, oh my goodness, what's she, or fiddlesticks or something, or fiddly foo or something mad, <laughs> because this book is on fire, um, which is, again, very, very chilling. But the most chilling bit in that scene is as she's walking around the bed, just chatting to him and just casually, I, every time I see it, it's amazing where she's just casually. Oh, the bottle of piss throwing the paraffin oh, over nice. the bed yeah. <laughs> but the bottle of piss is early there yeah. is there is a bottle of urine in it yeah. which is quite I think it's still quite funny at that point because he's just looking at it because yeah. she's gesturing him with it but yeah. she's not actually spilling it on him but it's just as she's walking around the foot of the bed actually covering him in paraffin as if to say if you don't burn it, yes. I might just burn you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's brilliant. Show don't tell. It's because sometimes her thinking <laughs> is a little muddy, as she says mm-hmm. here, which tells you a lot. Yeah. I mean, I know that psychologists have been trying to figure out what is wrong with her. Mm. And it's a lot, apparently. She's a bit... It, is that... So, just to be serious for a second. No, is exactly. it because Stephen King was like, she's just a, in quote marks, mad person. So he can't pin down what she is because yeah. he wants her to be everything. Or is it because she just has everything? You'd like to think he would have done more research into it, though, than just having a catch-all mad person. Yeah. But I guess, as I say, they've seen, you know, uh, some bipolar there. Some obsessive compulsive disorder, um, personality disorder with paranoid antisocial and borderline features and likely some sort of schizophrenic um, spectrum disorder. So that does sound like he's chucked everything in the mix. He's just thrown it all at the wall. I mean, I went into a bit of a... No, actually, we'll get to it. About the Angel of Death stuff, we'll get to that. I like Munchausen's, but um, Mm. I will... That was the one I didn't say because I wasn't sure about that, but... Yeah, I'm not sure about it. Mm. Um, So so we'll talk about the scene with the... Uh, the typewriter and the the smudgy paper because mm-hmm. this is a brilliant example of her flip flopping kind of thing with her temper. So she wants a new misery, misery's return, um, and she's gone and got him a typewriter and she's got him some paper. So Paul has figured out that he could get out of the room. He needs Annie to leave the house. So as a ruse to get her out of the house, he asks her for new paper, and you think she's just going to say, "Oh, like he, he tries to like let her in on a writer's technique, which is." He says, like, I want us to be in this together. So I'm just telling you this about the paper because, mm. you know, I respect you in that way. And she's like, oh, thank you so much. And then she goes fucking nuts and smashes his knees in. But she still goes to get the paper. It's the There's a line in here because, I mean, I think what's brilliant about Annie Wilkes and Kathy Bates' performance is that you are sympathetic towards her. She is not just mm-hmm. like this monster. There are points in it where you're like, you really feel for her. And even in that sequence where she's bought this paper, she actually says, but mine costs the most. Oh, I know. So I don't see how it can smudge. And you're like, oh my God, she bought him the most expensive paper as a kind of like, I'm going to get the best for Paul. And then it isn't the right paper. And just before she loses her shit and is like, you better start showing me some respect around here, Mr. Man. (laughs) Like she, you are heartbroken for her. Yeah. 
And the typewriter doesn't have an N. Am I right in thinking that that's from Stephen King's life? Isn't that an in writing that his first typewriter was missing two letters oh. or something? I forget now, but I feel like that's autobiographical, which just must have been a painful thing for him to have to go through. But I, it's on a more serious, not more serious, just a deeper note on that. Because Misery's, char- Misery's called Misery Chastain. There's no N. So that whole book is going to not have a proper name in it. And Stephen King was saying through the book version of Misery that Annie Wilkes is the, the quote, but like the constant reader. She doesn't give a shit about the process. She just wants the end product. So she doesn't care that she's going to get this novel, which is going to be maddening to read. And her main character's name will be misspelled because what she wants is the book itself. She doesn't care for process. Hmm. Um, and that he found that frustrating with people like that kind of thing. And ah. in, in the book, doesn't she, I think because he complains quite repeatedly about there being no end, she cuts his thumb off. She does, yeah, hmm. with an electric knife. Hmm. She doesn't do that here. No. I mean, I and I understand why. Um, uh, because it's just so, ex- well, weirdly, it's just too extreme. I don't know. I think, well, and you'd lose the hobbling scene. I yes. think if you've already seen a thumb removed, you're going to be less shocked. Less shocked by that, yeah. Um, so then Paul does have a little snoop around. So like I said, the empty phone terrified me years ago because the empty phone predates his arrival is what I thought. But then I thought about it now and it's like maybe she took... Annie doesn't think that Paul can leave the room, but she's not stupid. So did she dismantle her phone when she got Paul in the house? But when I first watched it the first few times, I was like, she's always had an empty phone. Mm. The fucking... <laughs> so it really frightened me. I think it's that. I think I think she's never had a phone. Yeah. Because she doesn't have anyone so to why call would, her. Why would you have why an empty you have phone? An empty phone? And then it I makes felt, no sense. But then I felt bad because I was like, she's just a nice ornament. Because I think it's the sort of the... the the pretense of normality and like everyone has a phone so I have a phone but she's just taken the insides out I think the the line that he says because he looks inside the phone and he goes you crazy bitch yeah. when he sees there's no phone I think that is supposed to tell us you know I think if he was meant if it was meant to be he, she's removed it his reaction wouldn't be that right yeah it? his reaction would be more like oh damn I can't use the phone because she's already seen this coming I see yeah I think I think I agree um so and then an important moment where he's he's been snooping around and he's managed to get back in his room, but he's really sweaty because he's been crawling around on his elbows. But he understands Annie's point of pride and it helps him here, but it doesn't really help him later, I don't think, which is he's like, I need my pain medication. You've left me here, which is why I'm sweating. And he says, help me. Uh, with my pain, make my pain go away. And I think he, he doesn't know it yet, but I think he's figured out that she has this sort of, the the angel of death stuff is a bit like, a sort of a messiah complex that only you can help that person and that you're, the people that are in your charge are completely dependent on you. If you push that button with her, mm. she'll do what you wanted to do in that moment. Mm. And that's something is... we've lost from the book, isn't it? He's, he's got a history of substance abuse issues in the book. These pills that she's giving him cause him to relapse. And we don't, I don't think we really get that here. Yeah, he's waiting for that medication quite a lot and he likes it. Yeah, which which again made it in my head a bit more like The Shining until maybe I watched the film, the book version is is, is a bit more similar. Yeah, um, I love this scene where so she loves a new book and it's nearly finished and so he, he invites her to dinner and so that's so brilliant that he has the power to invite her to dinner that she's going to cook in her own house but the way she reacts is like she has been invited out for dinner mm. by her favourite writer. He wants to poison her but she knocks the wine over. Now, I misremembered it. I thought at the end of that scene, she was in a good mood and she's not going to freak out, but she's like, I was never going to drink that wine because I know there's lots of pain medication in there. But she doesn't know, does she? No. no. I thought she did. Um, no. And I don't know if it would be better if she would if she knew or not. But anyway, um, so then after that, he's on a jaunt uh, again around the house and to get a knife. So he finds the scrapbook. 
and this bitch is killing babies. <laughs> so that's the end of her, obviously. So did she go to jail then? This is what I wanted to yeah, ask you. Yeah, this is confusing. Right. She lives in a community... Mm. Buster Caesar, he recognises her, he knows where she lives. When he's flying overhead, he says, that's the old Wilkes farm. So do they... She was convicted of those child murders, I believe, because... Or maybe not. I just didn't miss it. And the, well, she was definitely arrested. Yeah, because she's on the steps of a courthouse saying that the, a power a higher, higher than yeah, a higher man power than this court. Me. Yeah, yeah. So I thought if she had been convicted and she's living out her life <clears> in Silver... <throat> is it called Silver Creek? It's a really good example of forgiveness, a model of forgiveness, because she's done her crime and she's done her time... And she can be rehabilitated into the community. But equally, that is such a big ask of people to be like, oh, oh Ms. Wilkes, the baby killer. Like, it's a really, really big deal. So then I wondered if she was accused, but it was never proven. And it's a bit of a grey area, perhaps. Yeah. I mean, I assumed that she hadn't been to jail. That, uh, But then the line, a higher power than this court will judge me, sounds like someone who's been convicted. Yeah, but and, doesn't accept. Yeah. yeah. I just wasn't sure. No. No, I think it's I think it's I think it's a little bit too vague, and I found that quite frustrating. And I did wonder if it, is it. I mean, it's good that it's in there because it's just like the most evil. But is it for the audience to go? Oh, she's definitely going to die now because even you do feel sorry for her, and you do understand that she's a complicated person with definitely some trauma, and what has she done wrong, kind of thing. She it seems like she might have had a bad relationship with her husband, but now she's really done mm. really bad things. And, and, wow. the, and the point is as well, if she if she has done all this, <laughs> if they were puppies. <laughs> If it was Annie Wilkes' puppy killer, I'm going to keep this theme for the entire Stephen King it's month. It's such a dangerous line for you to tread, but you go, go with it. But who, who she is, who she is and what she's done, I don't even think it would be a prison sentence. Like, she'd be in a hospital for the rest of her life. Well, so, do you remember Beverly Allett, the angel of death in mm. from Lincolnshire? So she killed four children and she tried to kill six more children and she was she apparently told her friends she's she'll never go to prison because people that do that go to mental hospitals for the rest of their mm. lives and so she had a psychiatric assessment and they were like there's nothing wrong with her apart from what she did there's nothing wrong with her so she had this back and forth where she was trying to get into a secure unit rather than into prison because she's going to be in prison for the rest of her life and then they did put her in a secure unit because she was going to harm herself but her what her crimes weren't enough as in and actually Annie, I think the test of, I am no barrister, mm. but I think the test of like sanity is if you try to cover up your crime in any way, you're sane enough to go to prison kind of thing. Like you only get... That's with, interesting. I yeah, think I, that's I, true. I'd be, yeah, I'd like to find out more then because Annie doesn't seem to me like she's sane enough to go to prison. And I feel like two minutes into an interview with her, you'd be... Well, apart from, I'll, jump, I'll do it now just because mm. it's relevant, but when Buster comes knocking on the door, she is because she uses just enough crazy... To make him be like, okay, something's happened. But she's so smart because she's like, oh, yeah, the writer. Oh, that's awful. And so, yes, I did buy a typewriter because I'm going to be his replacement, which is obviously a cracker's thing to say. But she has to explain the shrine she's got to him and she has to explain why he's like he's not in her house. So Buster is put off the scent because she uses her own, in quote marks, madness. Buster's just going to get... Backup, isn't he? That's I what I, that's what I took. Buster's yeah, going maybe. to get back up, and then but he hears the voice, and so yeah, he has maybe. to come back. Yeah. It annoys me a little bit that bit. I mean, because obviously the whole Buster thing isn't in the book. It's you know it's been added for this, and I don't know. I think when he hears Paul Sheldon, if I, I always go, I don't know where I, I can never discern whether it's because I've watched the, the whole thing up until this point. So I'm like, I get the rules. You go back in there, you die. Yeah. So I then immediately imbue my decision making with I would not go back in there. No. But I do sometimes go, why would you? If you're like, if you if you hear a noise and you're like, if he's locked him there, 
I should still go and get more. I'm old. Yeah, I'm old. I am an old man. That's what makes it so complicated because he's a man and she's a woman. So it's it's reasonable to think that he might assume she's not much of a threat, mm. even though she's quite strong looking. God, that's a terrible thing to say. Do you know what I mean? She's not, she's not a pixie, right? So he's like, I'm a man, you're a woman. This is not a problem. But he's got at least like 10, 15 years on her. Mm. So is he so arrogant as to think, I'm an old man and yet you're no problem? Mm. Or is it just a spontaneous a, bit... a spontaneous act where he's yeah. just like, oh, I've just heard oh, something. I, yeah. I bet, I better and he's go out of practice. And... But in the book, <laughs> a police officer is murdered, but yeah. he's run over with a lawnmower. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm just a bit disappointed. See that. I'm just a bit disappointed to hear that if Alex hears me trapped in a basement, rather than help me, he's buggering off <laughs> to get help and do I'm some real, jobs. I'm and... in real trouble here. Yeah. <laughs> Back in a minute. <laughs> Stay there, Chris. Don't we move. have heard you. <laughs> Stop going on about it. Sh- sh- shut up. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. So anyway. Do you really think I need to stop the, the dogs are more valuable than humans thing? Hey, uh, I think you should have asked me that outside of this room. <laughs> I'm just interested. No. Hey, it's coming. We've got Gerald's game on Thursday. I think we can revisit it then. <laughs> so uh, let's talk about the big scene and let's talk about the hobbling because in case we need another reason to head the narrative towards a fatal fight, I think we know it's going to be fatal when they finally do fight. So she's a baby killer, bad. But now... She hobbles Paul. So she, um, in, like we said in the book, she chops his foot off with the axe and cauterizes the wound. In this, she puts a dirty wooden block between his ankles and smashes each of them with the sledgehammer. Does she? Okay. Which would, you know to, that. You, you see the foot bend inwards. What? It's mm, If you've got your eyes open. <laughs> it's horrendous. <laughs> it was more horrendous when I was a kid. It wasn't so much this time. I feel the opposite. Really? Yeah, because I've broken a bone as an adult and I know how much... I didn't, I'd never broken a bone as a child. So I've never broken a bone. That's impossible. <laughs> how is that impossible? Because of the drinking. <laughs> I, I'll hold my hand up. I was pissed. I can't get out of that. I was drunk. Oh, you see, yeah. I guess I can just hold it back. Shit, that's annoying. <laughs> that must annoy you. I tell you what, tw- New Year's resolution. I will <laughs> smash, <laughs> smash a bone in my body. Yeah. <laughs> like all the tequila. Thanks. Come on. <laughs> yeah. I've not even had that much. I got very unlucky, but I was. What drunk. happened? Uh, you won't believe because it sounds like a lie but this is really what happened I was walking out of a bar I was going home uh-huh. I'd had four drinks tops right and you're right I don't believe you but go on <laughs> everyone it was a really long time ago it was like to fucking 2007 or something so Corona with a lime in the top was a big deal was one and of it- those drinks a bottle of wine <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, as I was walking, I was trying to be good and I was on a, I was on a bit of a mission. I was like, I'm going home, I'm going home, I'm going home. And as I strolled out of the bar, I stood on a wedge of lime and I skied <laughs> along the floor and I went backwards and I put all my weight on my oh. wrist and I snapped oh, my wrist. Painful. How long does that take to heal? That's the it thing was, that annoys me about yeah. breaking bones. It's just the idea of of having having a cast on or like or having crutches for X amount of time. Yeah, it was heals. six weeks. But I've told you this story before. So when I went to hospital the day after, I still you know I had a bit of a hangover and I had the shame and I got a broken wrist and I was like for fuck's sake. And the nurse was like, um, "Can I ask where this happened?" I was like, "Yeah, it was um, it was Shoreditch." <laughs> she was like, "That is not what I'm asking you. <laughs> Did it happen at home?" And I was like. 
no. She's like, where did it happen? I was like, it was in the pub. She's like, yeah, I thought so. <laughs> and then wrote down in the pub. <laughs> Why do they have to keep a record of where it happened? They don't have to, but they like to know for statistics. <laughs> so next time you come in, you're like, oh, pub again. No, I don't think it's used against you. I think it's so the government can say X amount of drinking related injuries or whatever. Anyway, my point earlier was, I think this is worse because... Um, no, we have never had our foot chopped off with an axe and cauterised the wound with a naked flame, right? But we have most of us are broken bones and so we can imagine how much it hurts because it does really hurt to break a bone. So when she's smashing his ankles in, you can connect on some level with that pain rather than my brain would just go, nope, like if it was chopped off with an axe because I don't have any idea what it feels like. So I can't find a way in. Do you remember the scene in... I think about this all the time, which is such a little thing. The Departed. Leonardo DiCaprio's got his wrist in a cast. Mm. Jack Nicholson doesn't believe that he hasn't got like a bugging device down there, but he has got a broken wrist and he smashes his wrist on the table to get inside the cast and it really hurts. And that to me is really memorable and really painful because I know exactly how much that hurts. So Leonardo DiCaprio's screaming his head off, but you're like, yeah, that does, that really smarts. And so... I can relate more to this scene because you'll live. Like if someone was chopping your foot off with an axe, your brain would be like, he might die, he might bleed out. And then the blow touch is like, I cannot process this. But broken bones we've all had and we know that it hurts. Is it not just that like he comes out scathed, but not really scathed by the experience of being trapped at Annie Wilkes' house? Yeah. Like you sort of at the end, you're like, he's going to walk with a cane forever. Mm. But... Like, he sort of still survived. So, to, to use Warren Beatty's vernacular, he'd be slightly less of a loser. <laughs> yeah. I think, honestly, I think that's what it is. Yeah, and yeah. I think they've said as well it was the, it was the gore quotient that they thought that the, the, having the cut and the, and, the, and the blowtorch would be too much for, for the audience they wanted to get this in front of to take. Mm. Whereas the hobbling, I don't know. I mean, it's one of the most memorable moments yeah. in, in horror history. Definitely. So, they made the right choice. If it was too gory, would it not just blend in with all the other millions of gory things you've well, seen? Well, I think that's it, actually. Having just heard what Chris said as well, I think it is the fact that it's totally unique. I'd never seen that before. I'd never seen a, yes. a block of wood placed between yeah. two legs and, and a, also, a sledgehammer used on them, whereas I have seen numerous limbs <clears throat> amputated over the years. So yeah. it is. You remember it more because it's so different to anything else. And because you're already with you, your horror tropes have already been... unsettled because he doesn't wake up chained to the bed he wakes up and he's like oh I'm comfy and I might be alright and so and also when she gives it it's backstory with um, enslaved people in diamond mines and you know the foot the axe and the cauterizing part of your brain to protect your fragile self would be like I bet that didn't happen but you can bet that this did happen because it's easy to do it's cheap and it's effective and you you think that did happen Mm. so it's so horrendous Mm. yeah Anyway, um, so we're getting to the end. Um, Paul buys a bit of time to sort of um, opt out of this death pact. We've just covered Buster sort of coming around and uh, being Do put off the Do you like set. the Buster bits then? Uh, n- I don't like them because they don't resolve. So mm. no, I don't. Mm. I like them because they feed into this idea that we're in a sort of dream state almost, that this is not a real investigation. This is not a real missing person's case because mm. there doesn't seem to be any sense of momentum or real police work going on mm. which is we it's sort of dreamlike yeah but- i think it's the way buster sort of just keeps the fact that the door has clearly been crowbarred open from the outside to himself like he's oh, yeah. like there's a sort of I, it's weird because he's such a likable character mm. but there seems to be a little a certain amount of arrogance to him like i'm going to solve this yeah on my own rather than sort of go hey guys come over here look at this yeah. someone's been here it all seems very count it seems quite sinister actually mm. if you think about it like why has he decided to do it by himself um and also why has no one told paul's daughter like well, you, 
Are you turning Buster into the villain of this story? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> he's the sinister like one. Yeah. Actually, he's in love. He's in love and she's in love with him and it's our old friend from Outlander, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Um, I, I, like, I like the, uh, the Buster... And his wife's stuff. I liked it better when it was in Fargo a few years later. <laughs> <laughs> but I enjoy it here. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> and it is a relief. When we cut to them, it is a relief. Normal, nice people that are in love with each other. I think it just gives our brains a bit of a break yeah. from, from being stuck in that house with these two people. Yes. Um, so, yeah, so Paul finishes Misery. Now, Annie manages to whip up some Don Perignon from the local store. That's unlikely. Where <laughs> yeah, did she is. get that? I thought that, yeah. Um, I mean, I, I thought she'd sort of go, this is all I could get. And it was like, yeah. you know, happy champagne. <laughs> yeah, and she'd be a bit mortified, but he'd make it all right. Like, where's she getting that delicious... Delicious drink. From. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> People in small towns drink champagne. Um, me and Mark won a bottle of champagne at his mum's church raffle the other day and it just said prize bottle of champagne and we won it and it, so we didn't know what it was. And we were really excited and she was really excited and she brought it around. She was like, now don't you two just drink this. She was like, save it for your anniversary. Like made such a fuss about this bottle of champagne. And Mark was so ungrateful. He was like, if it doesn't come in a box, mum, it isn't any good. And I was like, don't talk to her like that. Anyway, Anyway, he was like, I'm looking it up straight away. It's from Lidl. Oh, I know, I know. Amazing. So we are going to drink it. <laughs> and, it and it's called Prosecco. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, champagne is on my mind uh, this week. So anyway, he, Paul, burns misery. Fucker. <laughs> Which is great. Yeah. And then when Annie is distraught, he smashes her with a typewriter. She calls him a cocksucker, which is brilliant. Isn't it weird that this is where... It's almost like there's a, the real Annie comes out here because in this moment she's happy to swear, having avoided swearing mm. and profanity for the whole thing. Yeah. It feels like that is an act, like she is pretending to be this well, pious person. Yeah. yeah, and it's because it was all about the book. Yes. And she turned his book against him, now he's turned her book against her. I love it. Yeah, it's, it is it's, really good. And the fight is so brutal. Like He's he's, he's very clear he's going to smash her head in, which is so a horrible thought mm. when you think about what it takes to kill someone. Um, but when he gets the ashes of the book and stuffs it in her mouth, I mean, it's very symbolic. Yeah, yeah, isn't that, yeah. It's not subtle. But when he's when he's slamming her head on the floor, she I saw an interview with her where she was saying, you know, they try and put soft stuff down there. I was really hurt. Yeah, getting banged and banged and banged with your head there. No matter how soft it is, you're gonna. She said mentally and physically, this really destroyed me. That scene. She said she found it very upsetting. And don't you think it's brilliant that she, the leg that she broke is what does for her almost as a false end? But she trips over his broken leg. It wouldn't be broken if she hadn't rebroke it. Mm. And so that's when she smashes her head on the typewriter. Rainer, Rob Rainer said that when they were um, rolling around on the floor, that was a twisted lovemaking session in his in his eyes. A lot of people say that, don't they, about fight scenes? Yeah. I mean, I, I buy it, I suppose. There's tension, I so guess. So it's like John Wick and orgy. <laughs> yes. Okay. Okay. Awesome orgy. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> Such a hot film. <laughs> but she's not dead. She's almost dead. You know, she's got to come back to life. The um, the, So she gets finished off with this pig door... Is it called a door stopper? Mm. A door stepper? Door stopper. Door stop. Door stop. Thank you. Sorry. That's been bugging me for weeks. Just come to me. <laughs> So, the, but I didn't really get the symbolism. Is the pig in the book? And is well, it more of a fuss about? The he pig gets in the book? fed to the pig in the book, right? So I, then, I think, yes. Well, isn't well, the, the skin that isn't used? I think he gets fed to the pig that isn't used on the book. Oh no, the, the skin's never used. Yeah, 
No, he's no, that, I think it's sorry in that version where his skin was used for the cover of the book. Yeah, the rest of him was fed to the pig. I have to say, because of all the true crime I listen to, if you're in a, a rural farmhouse and there's a pig, you think I'm being fed mm. to that pig. Well, it's, like, mm. yeah, and, and it was Hannibal. In, it was in Hannibal. Yeah, yeah. Mm, that's great. Yeah, yeah. Um, so anyway, she's she's dead, and then 18 months later, uh, Paul's got his new serious book, and it's got a serious title, which I unfortunately didn't remember, but Chris did. Um, but Annie has helped him. So and fortunately, Chris remembered. So fortunately, Chris <laughs> remembered. Even as I was typing, that's like I should. I haven't done it. Um, but anyway, she's helped him. So he's clean in the in the drug allegory, but temptation is everywhere, and he sees Annie at sort of random moments, and the waitress is like, "I just want to tell you that I'm your number one fan." Um, it's but, a good last line. Yeah. And he's doing a good, he doesn't, it's a good end for him because he does that sort of famous person thing where he, he's gracious, but obviously it, it must jar and mm, scare him. PTSD. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I, you know, it's an interesting thing because she has helped him in her own horrible, yeah. horrible way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If she hadn't tried to death pact him at the end, it might actually have been a, a very good experience. I mean, he, she could be on the payroll. <laughs> it's <laughs> Executive it's, assistant. Yeah. It's a very Stephen King direction to go in at the end and it's great. Yeah. I've died. I felt a little bit unsatisfied. I felt unsatisfied that he, like, it's like you say, he's, he doesn't seem changed enough because he wasn't very arrogant to start and now he's humbled. He didn't seem that arrogant to me at the start. Do you know what I mean? He was on a good journey of like self-discovery and he to, we never knew how good the Sweary Street Kid book was. So if it was a load of rubbish... It's more of a journey because Annie's helped him, but maybe that book was amazing. He didn't need helping. I'm not sure. Yeah, and I can't give you. We can't give you those answers. I do. I do. I I do think it would have been. I mean, I know he burns it, and that there's. I mean, it's quite like you say. It's a symbolic moment, but it would have been great if it was that book that he'd written under duress that he'd published at the end. Misery's Return. Yeah, and you know, it's in it's in Stephen King's head as well, or certainly at this time is. You know, if I if I stopped writing horror tomorrow and just did you know, serious literature, so-called yeah. serious literature, would people still read it? You know you know that this is all going on in his head. I'll tell you what's interesting is when he does try to write Misery's Return, but she gives him a really strong editorial note, which is Misery was buried at the end of the last book and though that's where you start and don't think you're getting out of it with she's like... Right. When she, she's yeah, 100% When she criticises right. those serials. If you've ever watched those old serials, they were lying to the kids every week. Yeah. Um, yeah. She makes she makes some very good points. She does. It's really I, sweet when he corrects himself because he, he, he goes to call them cliffhangers. What does she call them? She either calls them serials. She calls them serials yeah. or vice versa or cliffhangers. Chapter yeah. something. Chapter plays. Yeah. yeah. Mm. And he corrects himself because he's terrified of her yeah. if you say the wrong thing. Um, that's it. We're done. All right. No more? No? No? Nope, no. no. All right. Uh, what's your best scene, Alex? Her pretending to be a pig. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Alex. <laughs> I just think it's great. It's I really think scary. I mean, you know, I, I love the fact she loves that pig. And I think Annie Wilkes is so good, as I said, because she is a character who, you, you know, you have sympathy for. And the fact that she clearly loves that pig and she's named it Misery. And when she's pretending to be the pig, you imagine her and that pig having... She's, the pig is her only friend. And she has this relationship and she pretends to be the pig to entertain the pig when it's just the two of them there. And I think that little moment makes you go, wow, she is a, a, a really interesting character and not just a villain who I want to see die. And so you have mixed feelings yeah. about her for the rest of... The thing, because that happens quite early on. Yeah. Uh, what about you? Uh, rather go for the obvious, the hobbling. I really like the look on James Kahn's face when she knocks over the wine. Oh, yeah. Good face acting. Mm-hmm. I'm taking that moment because I, I misremember that scene as well. I thought it worked. Right. I, I thought this was one of the ways he starts getting the upper hand, but no, 
does not. Well, I will pick the hobbling scene. I love the fact that she's nursing him as well. So she's like, we're almost done. <laughs> Just one more. Mm. And then talk about fights as sex. Wait. She breaks his ankles and then she says, God, I love yes. you. And that is a sex voice. A hundred thousand percent. God, I love you. <laughs> mm. Jesus. Yeah. But she does do that. Uh, your most valuable whatever, Chris. <laughs> Oh, I hate to go obvious, but I'm going to say Kathy Bates. This is an example of someone taking their fucking shot. And um, it's just glorious. And, it's glor- and I get very upset that horror doesn't get the respect it deserves and those performances don't in, in crummy um, award ceremonies. And she deserved it so wholeheartedly. I, I love her in this. And I'm glad it launched in a, in a really awesome film career. What about you? Um, I honestly... Uh was not aware that this was Kathy Bates' breakthrough until I started doing the research around it for this. I mean, she's been such a sort of, you know, a powerhouse in Hollywood for so long. I didn't know this was her breakthrough. And uh, to watch it is to just be amazed. So, yeah, uh, Kathy Bates is phenomenal in this. And I think it is still her Oscar for Misery is the only Oscar a Stephen King adaptation has ever won. Mm-hmm. It's, and it's one of the rare times a horror movie has won an acting Oscar. Did the Shawshank not get well. No. Yeah. Really? Famously not. That was the big thing. But well, uh, And also Misery the Pig gets a mention. So I've also picked Kathy Bates' Annie Wilkes. I won't show you because we do that countdown thing, but I had to think of a reason beyond just like the sort of superlative. So I've put, so when she snores like a pig. <laughs> <laughs> That's really brilliant. It's, I told you, it's a great moment, isn't it? Yeah, and the pig is in a horrible scrapbook of all, like the murders that she's done are mm. really important to her. And then one of the last newspapers was just a big picture of the pig. <laughs> she loves the pig so much. Mm. Uh, Alex, what would you change? So it's a little bit similar to what Chris said about The Shining last week. I, I don't like this stuff with the sheriff and his wife I don't really I mean their relationship is fine it's sweet it's it doesn't sort of it doesn't do anything for me they're a little bickering and like she's like you know it's like oh they love each other but they're at that point where it's fine but what is it there for like I would rather be trapped in that house with James Kahn in that claustrophobia in that room then like it would be this big release when he actually sneaks out and you see the rest of the house for the first time. And you could still, all the information that is relayed through the sheriff and what have you, you would still find out. He can turn on the TV and see a news report. He could find a clipping in her scrapbook about him being missing and them calling off the search or whatever. So all that information is still available to you. I just keep it in the house, mm-hmm. which I think is what the book does. What about you? That's really good. I want that. But instead, I'm going to say exactly the opposite. I think that couple bring uh, humanity to this film that is quite useful when it does crop up. I don't think he has to die. Um, I think he could just be incapacitated. So I'd have Buster survive because I think it's really unfair on Virginia. And I love Virginia. And what we've invested in her and that couple. Because I, I, she just, she's just gone from the film. Yeah. And her husband's dead. And so we've spent quite a lot of time with them at that point. So I think it's just a thread that's left hanging. So mm. so eyes are all the same, sort of, because... Mine's about those two. So Virginia either has to see Buster and get revenge, see his body, or she has to be okay that he died doing what he loves. Like they just, mm. there's no resolution. Mm. Or he has to live. Um, or the Virginia and Buster go to the house together and Annie kills them both. So they're together forever in a weird way. Um, but it, yeah, like you said, you've no idea what happens to Virginia after that. You have spent quite a lot of time with her, a disproportionate amount of time with her, considering how not important she is to the narrative. And she's a horny old devil. Mm. But it made me think of Halloran in The Shining again, because I was—I remember I was like surprised that he still was lustful in some way. Well, they lived not far. Oh no, he was in Florida when we saw his, his yeah. home, but... 
he could he, when he comes back for the winter, him and Virginia. Yeah, but isn't it sad? A woman of a certain have... age. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, this is a shared universe now. Yeah, I guess they all are. They are. That's anyway, the yeah, point. Yeah, yeah. But it's such it's such a shame that even watching this film now, and it's like thirty years old. A woman saying, I know where I'd rather be. An older woman saying, I'd rather be under the covers with you. And you're like, whoa, what the <laughs> fuck? <laughs> like, that's ridiculous that we are a bit freaked out by that. Or I was, anyway. Well, I thought we just liked yeah. it. Yeah, no, I love it. I do love it. But it's, you don't hear that very often. Talks about shared universe. Um, the Overlook is in the... You know, I was telling you, I'm reading Billy Summers, this Hitman story. Mm-hmm. The overlook's in it. There's a painting on the wall with topiary animals that keep getting closer and closer <laughs> to the guy from the picture. Uh, right then. We done, we done? Mm-hmm. Everyone done the change? Great, yep. great, 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 great. So that is misery. Shall we do a quiz? Let's do a quiz. You like reading, Vicky, don't you? Yes, Chris. You like reading, <laughs> don't you sometimes, Alex? I like things. <laughs> <laughs> so this is about adaptations. I'm going to give you the name of the book. You ought to give me the name of the film it was turned into. Eek! So if I said all you need is kill, you'd say Edge of Tomorrow. Yeah, I would. What? <laughs> <laughs> Are we talking shit books or good books? Yeah, I get you. I get you. So, this is the Tom Cruise movie. We've covered it. Yeah, I know. Yeah, it was from a book called All You Need Is Kill. Jesus. As discussed on the episode at length. Um, so, what was the name of the first adaptation of Red Dragon? It uh, was Manhunter. Manhunter. That was, got that, there was first. So, that was so obviously a tie. <laughs> he got there first. I've got to be fair. I've got to be fair. You got there first, Alex. And I had mentioned it already on this episode. Nothing lasts forever. Is a book. Die Hard. It's Die Hard. Again, we've done it on the show. <laughs> right. <laughs> the Sheep Pig. Oh. Babe. Yo, fuck off. <laughs> Alex got there first because you didn't say anything. <laughs> I said fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> this was a loose adaptation, but I think you can figure it out. Uh, the Accidental Billionaires. Um, Trading Places? Brewster's Millions. No, uh, true story. So it was a it was a non-fiction book about... Oh, some... The Social Network. Correct. Yay. Oh, very good. Well played. Wise guy. Uh, Ghost... Goodfellas. Uh, correct. Damn it. Oh. Ghostbusters. What You're on the comeback trail. If you get good. this, it's a draw. Oh. <laughs> uh, this was a part of a series of stories in a book. I'll give you the name of the story. You give me the name of the film it was turned into. The body. Stand by me. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> oh, that was too she nearly quick. said it before I finished it. So I knew that's what you were going to say. That's, I'm concerned here. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Oh, which one do I do? I've actually got three. I've got three potential tiebreakers. Uh, should we stick with? Should we stick with Stephen King? Fine. Okay. <laughs> what was the full title of the Shawshank Redemption when it was in uh, that? I don't know. The Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption. The story the of Shawshank Rita Redemption. Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption. He got it. Oh! <laughs> it was Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption. Well played. Oh, my God. I can't believe I pulled that out of nowhere. Thank you very much. That was really good fun. I really enjoyed it. Oh, that I'm thing. gutted, actually. I'm pissed off about that one. I wanted you to win today, Vicky. <laughs> that was a fucking good comeback. What the hell? Yeah. <laughs> you started, I started closing my eyes because I can't look at either of you when this happens. And you've started turning away because we have to like relax in order to be able to do it. And so it's just turned into this really stressful thing. I love it. I do you not like it? You no, know I don't. <laughs> I enjoy how it's a heightened state of awareness. I feel, honestly, I feel like yeah, I've Yeah, I do feel like me. we're tapping into something mm. else. Yeah. It takes me a moment to come. The amount of adrenaline. Whew. Yeah, it's unreal. Mm. Great fun, though. Really good week. Really good quiz. 
great quiz this week, Chris. Uh, all right, then. Let's look ahead to next week. Victoria, they are your choices. Make them Stephen King movies. <laughs> oh, OK. What's um, the clue? <laughs> the clue is creature discomforts. Creature discomforts. That is your clue. Uh, Chris will be following that up on Twitter with another clue. Before then, though, we're going... No, gonna... he won't. No, he won't, because it's really easy. Uh, but before then... Will be, are you going As we've discussed, it's Stephen King month. That's the second clue. All right, We fine. literally talked about it at the start of this episode. Okay, I just didn't know it was a, a sort of a hard and fast rule for the entire month. But yes. that's fine. Okay, great, great, great. So maybe just say it one more time. Creature discomfort. <laughs> great stuff. <laughs> there you go. That's your one clue. There won't be one on Twitter. Chris won't be following that up with anything. Before then, though, we're going to be back on Thursday talking Gerald's game. In the meantime, please subscribe, rate, and indeed review us if you have the time. It's a great help. And check in with us on Twitter and Instagram at ClashPod. Speak Thursday. Bye-bye. This was a Stack production and part of the Acast Creator Network. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of non-stop hydration for silky smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER.